What's up, everybody? Keith Mitchell here from the Outer Haven, and we have a very special spectator mode podcast for you today. And as you know, we typically talk about video game news, gaming industry news here on Spectator Mode. However, we do like to make some exceptions. In this podcast, we had a chance to sit down with Brian Volkweiss, the director and producer of The Toys That Made Us, an ongoing series on Netflix that has spanned three seasons and has talked about toys that you may have played with during your childhood, such as He-Man or the Transformers, a personal favorite of mine, Legos, those level bricks that you hate to step on, Hello Kitty, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the Power Rangers, and many others. So it's been a great pleasure to have Brian here on the show. And due to the time constraints, we recorded this podcast. We had to cut a couple things out. That said, on to the interview. Uh, great way to start it. Uh, all right, so we'll, we'll actually re-record. We'll re-record the uh, interview after. So just sort of go straight into the questions, if you don't mind. Great. All right. Uh, First thing out the gate, probably one of the most common questions that you would have been asked is how how did the show come about and how did you convince Netflix to produce a show based around the history of toys, of all things? So the original inspiration for the show was I was at a a Borders Books and uh, it was about 11, 12 years ago. And uh, I noticed there were no books at all uh, about the history or the origin of Transformers. Then I looked some more. There was no book about the origin of G.I. Joe. There was one book, and I'm talking about the toys, by the way, but even the (laughs) Transformers, there was nothing about the origins. So that was the inspiration. Like, I'm a TV producer. I see a hole in the market. I'm a big toy collector. Why isn't there TV shows? Why aren't there books about toys that have affected, you know, probably over a billion people over the last 50 years? So if not more. And, you know, the bookstore had like a whole shelf of books about the War of 1812. And I'm like, no offense to that war, but why is there 50 books on the War of 1812 and nothing about Transformers? So that was the inspiration. Uh, for about seven years, I tried to sell the show. Uh, everybody passed. Came very close at a couple of places, but they at the end passed. And then uh, I got very lucky. Uh, we produce a lot of stand-up comedy. And we were pretty much the first people to make stand-up for Netflix, original stand-up specials. So there was a gentleman at Netflix. Here's the two real lucky breaks. Um, His job was to buy stand-up comedy specials that had already been shot and Netflix would acquire. And I do a lot of those. So he and I got to know each other, a guy named Devin. And Devin, we became friends because we did a lot of business together and we had a lot in common. Um... He was at my house one day and he saw my toy collection. So that's a very important detail because producers, just like actors, get typecast. So I'm very well known within Hollywood as a comedy guy. So it's very hard as a comedy guy to sell stuff that's not comedy. So he had been to my house and he had seen my toy collection. So he knew... Because I had, at that time, about 500 toys 
is now <laughs> it's now a lot more than that. But anyway, um, as we can all attest to, <laughs> ne never sell a show about one of your passions because then it will go out of control. But anyway, so what happened was he then got transferred out of the stand-up comedy space and was basically one of the first people at Netflix to begin doing original unscripted programming. So we already knew each other. He'd seen my toy collection. So when I pitched him, quote unquote, my toy show, he was at first not very receptive, but I kept nagging him and nagging him and nagging him for months. And then finally he was like, well, if we did a toy show, here's the kind of toy show that we would want to do. So I took notes. Then uh, we produced our own about five to six minute tape. That was that tape is what got the show greenlit. Um, and it showed how we would produce a show about toys. And if you were to see it now, first of all, I've been in, we, we show it at conventions every now and then, the original sales tape. Usually at least minimum half the room is crying by the end of it. It's a very emotionally powerful tape. Um, but if I showed it to you now, you would be like, yeah, that's what the show became. Fair enough. With, uh, like you were basically saying a lot of Transformers, that's obviously the first one that you were pitching by the sounds of it. Um, no, I mean the original every, it just happened to be when I was at the bookstore, I don't remember why anymore. It's, I had seen or heard something that had me be like, hey, I wonder where the Transformers come from. But the origin, everything toy, why everything starts and ends with Star Wars. You know, going back to those original ones, uh, the old uh, the old 12-pack. Right, exactly. The original 12-pack. But, uh, like, how do you go about gathering the history of, this, of these uh, toys? Because... When I watched the the Star Wars one when in the first season, and of course, you know, season three out now on Netflix, people go watch. Uh, you sort of started with the actual history of Star Wars and the miniatures they used on the show. So, like, how did you go about building the history and the story in the way that you end up telling it? Well, every episode's different as it relates to how we go about making it, and what it really comes down to is. There's a, for lack of a better expression, there's a eureka moment when you're producing an episode. And some episodes, you have the eureka moment before it's greenlit. Some episodes, like one episode in particular, we were about to deliver to Netflix and I wasn't happy with it. And I finally had the eureka moment, like the day it was supposed to deliver. And I begged Netflix for an extra month and they let me recut the entire episode. So every episode is dependent on finding, like the Turtles episode, the Eureka moment was like three hours and 45 minutes into the interview with Peter Laird. He mentioned that he still had the rights to do 14 issues a year. So we had been interviewing and producing that episode for four or five months at that point. We heard that detail and retooled the entire episode. On the Star Wars episode, it's when we interviewed Jim Kipling, the lawyer from Kenner, and he brought the contract with him and showed that Lucas actually did not make a lot of money from the toys. So that completely changed that episode. 
So it's really a matter of how long it takes to find what we believe, what I like to call the spinal column of an episode. And to your question, by the way, with the Star Wars episode, from the minute, like, at the Borders books or whatever, that I conceived of the show, I always knew I wanted to recreate ILM. Uh, uh, Personally, my my favorite episode so far have been sort of the more 90s-centric stuff, the sort of late 80s, 90s, so you Transformers, Turtles, this season in particular with Power Rangers and the wrestling figures. Like, how, how do you block a season? Like, you've only got four episodes a season. Do you sort of just, like, as you were saying, it's you've got the information available. Like, do you sort of have stuff blocked out for later seasons already, or do you sort of do it on the fly based on the information you've got? So we shot seasons one and two simultaneously. And I didn't know if we would ever get any more episodes greenlit. So I made Star Trek for myself for a bunch of reasons. I'm a big Trekkie. I had already produced a 50th anniversary Star Trek episode for History Channel that I was not happy with. And I used the Star Trek episode of Toys in my own mind, to quote Quantum Leap, to make right where once went wrong. So that's why I did Star Trek. Uh, I did Hello Kitty for my wife. I wanted there to be at least one episode <laughs> that people love. Because uh, I, got, I got a lot of grief back then for doing Star Trek and Hello Kitty and not doing Power Rangers and Turtles. So, But I wasn't into Power Rangers at all. And I sort of really, I, I had some turtle stuff, but I really wasn't into turtles either. So that's why I did Star Trek and Star and and Hello Kitty. When, but uh, interestingly enough, for example, and people are always surprised to hear this, I was not into He Man in the slightest, and now I'm into He Man. But that's because I produced a TV show about He Man. So I did He Man because I knew it was popular. I knew it was a great story, um, and that really was the reason. I didn't realize how great the story was, so I wasn't going to do He-Man. And then my crew kept saying to me, we got to do He-Man, we got to do He-Man. And our director of season one, Tom Stern, who was not a toy fan, I always pick people who are not toy people uh, to work on the show because I want the show to be for everybody. And Tom came to me one day and was like, dude, we got to do He-Man. <laughs> and I'm like, if this guy who doesn't give a shit about toys is like having to come to Jesus with me about He-Man, we should probably do He-Man. Yeah, He-Man was always one of my favorite, but it always had that cast of quirky characters. It was just like characters you wouldn't expect to see in another cartoon series, but they made them work. And yeah. then they continued on with Shiro. It was like, this character, what what does this character do? This character seems completely useless, but here they are doing their thing, making it enjoyable. Yeah, I, and I learned that while making the show, but I didn't know that beforehand. So I fell in love with He-Man because of the show. But for season three, um, I, you know, I wanted it to work. I wanted to have a big hit so we could get a season four, maybe a season five. So... I picked the toys that I knew had the most rabid fan base and also had great stories 
Because there's certain toys that get someone thinks of an idea, some CEO greenlights it, and it's a huge hit. That's a very good thing for the toy company and a very bad thing for a director of a TV show. You need twists and turns. You need ups and downs. So I picked the four most popular brands that also were a great story to turn into an episode. There's still some left, by the way. Hot Wheels (laughs) is a great story. Pokemon's a great story. Nerf, believe it or not, is a great story. Dungeons and Dragons, great story. Oh, that's a great story right there. So there's still a whole bunch that are left that we need, God willing. Well, I don't know if we need to do it the way we need oxygen, but if you remove that oxygen reference from the equation, we need to do it. So majority of the shows, majority of the shows that you that you've done so far that cover toys that had interesting stories, like for example, the Transformers one. Not many people knew that it came from America, went to Japan, and then it's been a lovely relationship back and forth. Are there anything? Is there anything that's focused solely in Japan that you may want to cover? Like for example, with me, I'm one of the big uh, Gundam fans that I know. And I know Gundam has a big following in Japan, and it's come so far to be popular in the U.S. as well. Is it st- something like that you might consider in covering in upcoming seasons if you had the chance and if there was interest in that? If I had the chance, and it would require a green light bigger than four episodes, but I am dying. I'm obsessed with Robotech. Yes. Robotech. Yeah. <laughs> so, my cross. Yeah. So... I don't know about Gundam, to be completely frank with you. I don't know enough about Gundam to know if it should be an episode. Oh, Gundam's like a a history lesson. It's just like so many different series and centuries. You know what? You probably go crazy just looking into it. It's a lot of stuff with Gundam. That I am aware. Like that and Doctor Who are the two things where I'm like, oh, too big. I, I can't have another giant thing in my life. Um, but so if they greenlit, let's say another eight, then I would definitely consider Gundam, but I'd have to research it and figure it out for myself. I know Robotech is worthy of an episode right now. I know Hot Wheels worthy of an episode right now. Gundam, I'd have to do research. If you did do a Macross Robotech one, would you also look into the, uh, the situation with Harmony Gold and how they're causing a lot of grief for big Macross fans in the United States. The the current problems, you mean? Yes. Yeah, of course. Yeah. No, I mean, we always try to end the episode in the current day. So without a doubt. But as you probably know, Harmony Gold, and this is very lucky for us, was very, very involved with the toys. So like, they, it wasn't like some of the other things that we've covered occasionally where it's like, eh, just go make the toys and send us our check. Like Harmony Gold was super involved. Yeah, they were. With the Matchbox era Robotech. I got to say, I, it, was, it was interesting watching the Transformers one because the second you guys showed Jetfire, I was like, oh, are they going to talk about how that came from Macross first? And sure enough, you did. And I was like, yes, thank you. Not many people really knew that. It was like that doesn't look like Jetfire from the cartoon show. That's because it's not the same guy. I don't know about <laughs> you guys. I'm 43. 
So Same. I turn 43 tomorrow. I'm in the 30s. <laughs> He's a youngin. When I got Jetfire years later, I was like, oh my God, Robotech ripped off Transformers. <laughs> so, because I got introduced to Jetfire way before I fell in love with before I even knew what Robotech was. Yeah. Yeah, it was interesting. That was an interesting piece. I was, um, I was surprised when I first saw the Veritech make his way in the Transformers. And I was like, huh? That's something's wrong here. But yeah, big fans of both of those series. I, I love them both dearly. Um, so you, 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 were spe- you were speaking about how Harmony Gold sort of really was very interactive with the toys. And you, you've got a lot of access, which I thought would have been near impossible to get. Like going back to uh, like the Power Rangers episode, you had the guys from Japan speaking directly about their product and everything. Has there been any company so far that sort of said, look, we can sort of do something, but we can't give you the full story? No, everybody there of the 12 episodes, 11 companies did deals with us directly to give us support. Uh, wrestling, the WWE, uh, refused to work with us, so we, we had no involvement with them whatsoever. No, that's that's but fair enough. That company is still very secretive. There's no halfway companies, 11 companies said yes. One company said no, nothing in between. And those 11 companies, and it wasn't 11 companies. What am I talking about? Hasbro, I think, is behind five or six of the episodes. Um, yeah. So uh, we had Lego, Hasbro, Mattel, Sanrio, Playmates. I guess technically Takara, Tohei. So those seven companies could not, I mean, could not have been more awesome to work with. San Rio was a little bizarre, uh, if I'm being honest, but they weren't bad. But everybody bent over backwards to help us. I mean, it was, it was unbelievable, the support we received. Once they knew we were legit, once they knew that we cared about the toys and we really worshipped their brands, then they, I mean, they were killing themselves, finding relics, like hunting down people for us to interview, like un, like heartwarming, beautiful support. That was actually going to be my next question about like the relics and stuff that's got tracked down. Like some of the stuff that you put on film, I was surprised even still existed. Like you, you were showing off production molds of the original turtles with the tails and everything else. Was there anything that they sort of very hard to find? Those were very hard to find. We knew they were out there, uh, and it took it was very hard to get those. Certain things you'd be shocked were easy. Some of the Star Wars stuff we got easy, but it was weird stuff that was always the hardest to get. What was what was the the one piece that made you as a toy fan sort of step back and go, "Wow, I didn't even know that existed," or I thought that had been lost to history. I, I, I mean the the two, well, I mean the thing where I mean I literally was crying. I cried. I'm like sitting there on a beautiful day in Osaka. Everything's going great. Couldn't couldn't have been better. 
and we're in the old Takara headquarters with a lot of these guys who had been retired for 20 years. One guy drove eight hours each way in the same day to meet with us and do the interview. Takara hadn't talked to him in 15 years, hunted him down. He agreed to talk to us. And what happened was, I mean, I literally could even choke up right now telling the story. We were filming in the old Takara headquarters for two days. One of the guys, the bald guy, he came, he was going to do his interview day two. He showed up day one because he had never done anything like this before and wanted to watch what this process was like so he'd be better prepared for day two. So he shows up. He sits there the whole day, 12 hours, watching everything. He shows up the next day, and he's got this binder under his arm. We don't ask him what it is. He doesn't tell us. And he starts doing his interview, and the binder's out of camera. And he's like, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, it's in Japanese, so I don't know what he's saying. And the translator's translating. And then, so there's a delay. So as he's reaching to get the binder, she's translating what he had said 15 seconds earlier. And she's like, oh, and I happen to have the only pictures known to exist of the original balsa wood models as he's opening it. Wow. There it is. There's Optimus Prime. Everybody knew this existed. Everybody knew it was destroyed. But there's a there's a Polaroid picture of the first version ever of Convoy. Like, and it was just all these Polaroids. And I literally started crying. Yeah. So that, and then, so, and then word got back to Takara what had happened. So the third day of shooting, we're at Takara's current headquarters. And one of the people from Takara comes up to me and was like, Hey, I hear you were crying like a baby yesterday. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, yo, you know, he's like, well, if you were crying over those Polaroids, you're going to have a stroke when you see what we have in our basement. <laughs> and they literally, during lunch, we didn't film this, unfortunately. Literally during lunch, the guy took me down to the basement by himself opened some doors, fumbling through keys. And we go into this giant supply room with these just huge plastic kind of Tupperware containers that are all probably like three feet by one foot, maybe maybe four feet by two feet, giant Tupperware containers. Randomly pulls one out, opens it. There's like kind of dirty napkins wrapping all of those beautiful, and you saw them in the episode, those beautiful wooden mold formers that were like everybody's heads and chassis came from those beautiful wooden models that were hand carved. And they're all just in the basement. So at the, we were supposed to wrap, I think, at like 6 p.m. We brought the whole crew down to the basement. We had our light box, which is this portable thing we carry with us all over the world. That spin, the, the, the inspiration was from 2001, that lit floor at the end of the movie where the old guy is in the bed. So we yeah. built a light box based on that idea. And 
we reassembled the light box into Kara's basement and for like three hours, just opened boxes, filmed it, put it back, opened boxes, filmed it, put it back. And it was, it was, it was truly magical. You guys got a chance to touch history there. Something that not many people get to do ever. Yeah. Man. And you know, on a somewhat related note, but really interesting, like, Takara created, you know, Diaclone and everything, and they got a basement and all their stuff's in the basement. The thing that's so interesting about Star Wars is all these people that worked at Kenner, none of them knew what was coming. So in Cincinnati, we would go to these people's houses that are in like some cul-de-sac that you would never look at twice in a building community that was like nine years old and you go in these guys' basement and they have like the, the first test shot of the TIE fighter made in green plastic. They have the, 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 the original prototype of, of, of Luke Skywalker's telescoping lightsaber in a basement. With no fire protection, like, yeah. So that was what was so interesting about the Kenner community in Cincinnati was like a lot of the sons and daughters of the Kenner employees have like multi-million dollar collections in their basements in a random cul-de-sac in a suburb of Cincinnati. So like that's what was so great about making this show. It was like you never knew where you would find stuff. Man, that is that is definitely interesting. Wow, especially the part that they just got history just lining in their basements and yeah, no idea what this is. Well, they know, but nobody yeah. knows it's there. Uh, have you ever actually tapped like there's there's major communities out there like you see it on YouTube and everything like toy collectors who have all sorts of weird stuff floating around. Have you ever sort of scoured the internet to try and get in touch with some of these fans to? Get either get their input or bring them in as a part of the program. I noticed yeah. you brought in Andre, otherwise known as Black Nerd Comedy, in season three. Have you ever sort of looked at sort of other avenues as well with some of the other people that are out there for their collections? Uh, yes and no. Uh, the yes part, every time an episode is greenlit, we hire at least one, usually two, uh, sometimes three, but usually one or two experts of that toy. So we work very, very closely with usually the most respected people of a toy line from the collecting community. As it relates to what is on camera, not at all. I made a decision very early on that some people hate not to talk about collections, not to talk about collectors. I have a collection. I am a collector. I personally, and I'm the director and producer of the show, it's boring. It's boring. How many times can you see a shelf full of G.I. Joe figures? And before you're like, who gives a shit? Like, and I, I have a shelf full of G.I. Joe figures. I have probably over 2,000 toys now in my collection. But it's the way I look at it is, it's a lot like magic. Magic is cool if you're in the theater and you're seeing a magician on stage do shit. That's cool. If you're at home on TV 
you've seen dinosaurs walking. So if they can make dinosaurs walk, if they can make spaceships fly, how is magic interesting on television? So they can erase wires. They can CGI in a bird. So it's the same thing. It's like collecting's cool, but it's not, it doesn't make for good television. That is my opinion. I could be wrong. People definitely disagree with me, and that's their right to disagree with me, and I respect it as long as they're respectful. Um, But I I made that decision very early on. Uh, So not to sort of pry into it, like if you've got plans for season four, but is there anything personally that you have yet to tackle that you are like sort of – for lack of a better phrase, chomping at the bit to, to get at. Like, is there a particular toy line that you're, I really would love to do this if I get a chance to do it? Absolutely chomping at the bit to do Hot Wheels. If we don't get to do another season and we don't get to do Hot Wheels, that's just, that's that, that makes me sad. Um, feel the same way about Pokemon. I feel the same way about um, Nerf. And again, everybody thinks I'm crazy for Nerf. God willing, we get the green light. Nerf will be your favorite episode. I'm telling you that right now. Um, I'm curious to see how you do Nerf, actually. <laughs> it's a fascinating, fascinating story, first of all. Second of all, the thing that most people don't understand about Nerf, and I was one of these people three years ago, Nerf, since the first year it came out, has never, ever, left the top three toys of any given year. So like if Harry Potter doesn't have a movie coming out, Harry Potter toys don't do well. Nerf with no movies, no cartoon, no TV show is always in the top three toys. That's the first thing. The second thing is the origin story is hysterical and brilliant. Third of all, it completely reinvented itself about six years ago. So they went from making footballs and baseballs to making assault rifles. Oh, and yeah. Millennium Falcon. Like, so it's a great story. But two episodes I'm super passionate about. And my God, if I get to make them, I, 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 I won't even believe it. One is I really want to do an episode about um, – uh, fast food toys. Um, like yes. it's a great story. It also, again, it's a Star Trek story. It starts with Star Trek, the motion picture and Burger King. Um, it's not just about McDonald's. So it's a really great story, but the episode, if I get the chance, if Netflix says to me, Hey, good news, you're greenlit for another X amount of episodes. Bad news. It's the last green light you're never gonna make any more if they do that then my hope is the last episode of the series will be an episode called the toys that should have not been made (laughs) bookend to the star wars episode because the spinal column of that episode will be ljn's dune line because the way LJN felt about Dune was how Kenner felt about Star Wars. Except one movie became the biggest movie in history. One movie literally destroyed everything it touched. 
David Lynch never directed another movie for 10 years. Uh, LJN went out of business. The, the studio went out of business. It, like Kyle MacLachlan didn't act for like three years. Like it destroyed everything it touched. But the thought process that went into everything that had to do with the movie, the toys, every, have you seen the toys? They're beautiful. Yes. They're beautiful toys. And to appreciate how beautiful they are, you have to see what the other toy companies were making at the same time to see how much love and time and money went into making LJN's Dune line. But we would also cover the 1998 Lost in Space toy line, the Waterworld toy line, the my favorite of all time toy line that should have not been made, which... Again, if you haven't done a deep dive into these things, you need to do it immediately. Battlefield Earth's toys are bat shit crazy. Like, I get. I didn't even know they had a toy line. Me neither. It's they have a toy. They have a figure. It's a naked dude in a loincloth with a skinned raccoon, not just on his head, covering his fucking face. So it's literally, I hope I can curse. Am I allowed to curse? Yes, yeah. you can. <laughs> yes. Literally a naked white dude with a loincloth with a fucking raccoon on his head. It is the creepiest thing you have ever seen. And it, even more bizarre, comes with like a weird play set covered in vines. Like there's like a fire hydrant. Cover, like, it's like they, they had leftover shit from another toy. And they were like, oh, put raccoon head. On the fucking, it, it, it's bananas. So I'm actually trying to find that toy right now, so I can see it, and I can't find it. Bananas. Wait, just go to eBay, Google Battlefield Earth toys, and it'll come up, and it should be eighty nine cents. That's crazy. Speaking of that, since you since you mentioned that. What is the most obscure thing you found or encountered while doing any of your shows? I mean, not to split hairs, but how are you defining obscure? Like something that just goes like something. Okay. An example would be we were watching the Star Wars episode and we were, they were talking about how they were coming up with the modes and they had to do their presentation. They had the Jawa and they were like, uh, we don't have anything for it. And they do cut off the top of his sock. And I'm like, Genius. I would have never thought of that. Right. Something along those lines. I mean, the most surprising thing we learned, without a doubt, was that uh, George Lucas didn't make a lot of money from the toys. My Everybody our age, uh, at least you and I, Keith, <laughs> uh, everybody our age grew up believing George made all the money from the toys and nothing mm-hmm. from the movies. So when he's not only did he say that that was not true, because I wouldn't have believed him except for the fact I, I've done over a thousand interviews. I've never seen this in my life. The guy brought the contract. So had he not brought the contract, we wouldn't have even believed him and we wouldn't have used the footage. So that's definitely the most obscure thing. That yeah, we- that blew my mind, too. And I saw that and I was like, wait, Kenner's getting 95 percent or 95 cent of this. Lucas, or, um, it was like a, a nickel. And I'm like. How how did that even happen? Well, obviously, because nobody wanted to do the toys, but that's crazy. Kenner may not like a bandit on that. They did. They did. 
an unbelievable story. And not just for toys. It's an unbelievable business story in the history of capitalism. Yeah, well, that, that's the other thing I've noticed about the show is like the business stories and the contracts and everything else, uh, especially with the Star Wars and also the uh, Playmates Turtles contracts and all that type of stuff. Like the business behind the toys and the way legal works and everything else. It was just amazing to sort of see how that all progressed and how a lot of these guys that came up with these ideas were all, almost sort of screwed out of their own creations, really. Like, from a profit side. Here, here's the thing. And again, I don't mean to split hairs. You can't say somebody's getting screwed if they signed a contract it's and true. agreed to the terms. True. So the whole thing with Kevin Eastman, he, he signed the deal. He, knew, he could have put in something like, if you sell it for more than $20 million, I get X. There's a million ways that cat could have been skinned. So uh, I forget the gentleman's name from G.I. Joe that, every, you know, he got screwed, he sued, whatever. The guy had a choice. A hundred grand, no rights. Fifty yeah. grand, some rights. He chose a hundred grand and no rights. That was his choice. He signed a contract. So, yeah, I, I have not really seen any evidence of anybody being screwed, except for when Mattel was like, nah, we're not going to pay that guy what we owe him for Barbie. That was really bad. That yeah, I got screwed. Well, a lot, a lot of that, like, I'm not so like it was bad, bad phrasing on the word screwed, but it's sort of like a lot of these people couldn't have predicted what they were about to create to go into the stratosphere the way they did. Yeah, lack of foresight. Yeah. And and you sort of look at the way that the contracts were worded and everything else, and you're like, wow, hindsight really is 2020. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it happens though. That's the nature of the biz. That's right. You never know. And I'm uh, I'm getting uh, some looks uh, from uh, Kelsey here. So uh, yeah, uh, if you have one or two more questions, please fire away. Uh, I'm I'm quite happy to to finish things off here. Uh, have you got any other projects besides uh, the toys that made us coming up that you want to plug? Uh, we just had uh, the Mad About You reboot uh, come out, which we produced. That came out last week. Uh, so, uh, we have the movies that made us, the spinoff of Toys That Made Us. That comes out this coming Friday. Um, we're doing a show for Disney Plus with The Rock, uh, called Behind the Attraction, uh, which is all about the theme parks, uh, and some, they don't like to say rides, uh, so some attractions. Uh, and, uh, a lot of other stuff I can't talk about yet, but, uh, we got a cool show coming out next year with Zach Efron. Um, so yeah, we got some fun stuff coming. I, I'm very biased. Maybe other people don't think it's fun, but I do. Yeah, All right. already, they sound like good things to go and watch on Netflix and Disney plus. And we must ask the obvious question. Any news on season four at all? We will not know anything till at the earliest January. Okay. My Stole guess- my question, buddy. <laughs> My guess is if we get a green light, and it's a big if, if we get a green light, it'll be somewhere in February or March. All right. If it's dead as a doornail, we'll know in January. If we're going to get an order, uh, we'll probably find out in February or March. All right. 
Well, Brian, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I enjoy talking to you, especially with all these stories. Definitely enjoying the show. I, I can't speak for you, Mace, but I've been loving it. Uh, as soon as the season drops, uh, we marathon it straight away. We all, are all four episodes kind. from start to finish. You're very kind, uh, and it, it's my, literally my honor to talk to you. So thank you for being interested in any of this. Not a problem, sir. All right, I'll let you get your time back so you stop getting those three looks. Thank you for stopping by, sir. <laughs> Thank you, gentlemen. Have a good Thanksgiving. You too. Take you it too. easy. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this very special edition of the Spectator Mode Podcast as we enjoyed making it. And a big thank you also goes out to Hannah Schwartz over at Surefire. Without her help, as she reached out to us and introduced us to Brian. So, Hannah, thank you very much here from the Outer Haven for making this podcast possible.